Welcome back to another episode of the Rage Podcast. I'd want to begin by just wishing you a happy Black History Month with the reminder that Black history is American history and should be celebrated throughout the year and not just February. But given that it is Black History Month, we really wanted to center the Black community and center Black voices within our episode. That being said, today's episode is with Her Health, Her Truth, which is founded by Colorado Black Health Collaborative. And so I'll be joined with two representatives from Her Health, Her Truth, who will be introducing the important work that the organization is doing for Black women. So once again, happy Black History Month, and let's get into it. First thing that I want to do just to go ahead and get us started is have both of you introduce yourself also so we get used to the sound of your voice so we can connect the name with the voice during the episode. So if you can just go ahead and introduce yourself, your academic background, your community organizing background, or whatever you would like for our listeners to know about you that is relevant to today's episode. So my name is Christina Yubua and my background doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So I got my undergraduate degree from Emory University in psychology. And during that time, I really thought I wanted to be a neuropsychologist who focused on trauma, like things like PTSD, like traumatic brain injuries. And so thought I was going to get my PhD and collected all this field experience and then realized I, that's not what I wanted to do. Like right before I submitted my PhD application, And realized that while I was collecting my field experience, that what I was more passionate about and understanding was like the policy issues and the population health perspectives of like the the type of field experience that I was collecting. So then I went on and got my master's in public health. And during that time, I wanted to get some more technical skills. So I tacked on a master's of public administration. So that's kind of one of the reasons why I ended up getting a double degree. And because I did that dual degree, I was able to create like a custom concentration. And so... I created a a concentration called community informed policy, because one thing that came up a lot in my studies and the current job that I was working at the time was that decision makers make decisions on behalf of communities they've never stepped foot in and don't talk to anyone and don't consult anyone. So I became really passionate about kind of bridging together decision makers along with community. And so one of the reasons why I took this advocacy job was to kind of get to know the policy side. And then during grad school, I also interned at the Colorado Black Health Collaborative, which is how I got connected to them. And after I graduated, they asked me to join their board to get the community's perspective. So that's one of the reasons why I kind of have that that balance is because I'm really passionate about understanding both sides so that we can learn how to build and bridge power. Thank you so much. And then Kalia? I love that. I actually didn't know some of that about Christina. I've known Christina for a while now at this point. My name is Kalia Hunt-Kabir. I am currently a racial equity consultant with a group called Forever Riot that I actually am a co-founder of that was created with a couple of DU folks. So Shout out to Patrice Green and OZ Alizeum. Those are my partners in crime. My background is actually in sociology and ethnic studies. I have two bachelors from Colorado State University. And I just say that that is the place where I found my voice and myself and a lot of my activism, uh, specifically in ethnic studies, that kind of gave me my Black feminist orientation that has like guided my work thus far. I also was an intern for Colorado Black Health Collaborative in undergrad. So that is kind of where I have my ties. And ironically, I think Christina and I both have these ties to CBHC that have led to us being a part of the Her Health, Her Truth like foundation. I have a degree from DU where I focus on kind of similar things. My focus was on the socialization of Black women in higher ed. So I'm working to get my PhD right now. I'm in the process um, of getting more school because I love school, apparently. I love higher ed, kind of. So yeah, that's that's where I'm at right now. Can I just tell you about how Kalia and I met? So we were part of a program that shall not be named. 
and <laughs> we redacted program redacted program when we were in high school um and we were supposed to be working with college students and they were supposed to be like leading this group for us to tackle a um, specific topic area and the college students did they they lacked competence and so Kalia and I basically just were like sisters and taking the charge and like making up for the inadequacies of our college team so I feel like Kalia and I just have always worked really well together since the beginning like 16 17 years old <laughs> yeah and it makes it really crazy to think about because we were very young critical black women even at that age and so it's kind of like full circle to be working with someone who I knew back then and kind of seeing all of the things that we've done that are very different and very similar, but have landed us to like collaborate again, I'd say on a larger scale than like, you know, a pro like a summer program project. That's awesome. I did not know you each other before, before Elvin High School, 1617. One of the things that I wanted us to move into was introducing her health or truth and Colorado Black Health Collaborative for people who may be unfamiliar with both of those are. But before I do that, I'm interested to know within your community work that you were doing at that age, 16 and 17, versus the person you are now, what are the lessons that you've learned or how has your ideologies, how have your influences changed, stayed the same throughout that time period? I can start off with that. Back when I was in high school, I so I went to a predominantly white high school and grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. So I was struggling significantly with my identity at the time. And so I kind of kind of oscillated between like self-hatred and then just like straight hatred for white people and white culture and kind of just oscillated between the two of them. And so I think that I hadn't quite figured out how to capture that anger um, and that hurt in any type of like productive means, which I can gladly say, like I have done a significant amount of work on lately, shout out to therapy and also to like education and being able to put language behind your experiences, right? So I would say that that's a huge thing for me. And I think the other thing is that like the theme of like my life is that black women save my life. Like, honestly speaking, everybody who's been most influential in my life have always been black women. And that's one of the reasons why like I want to center most of the work that I do on black women, because throughout my high school experience, throughout my college experience, throughout my adulthood, there has always been kind of a, a strong I don't even want to use the word strong. There's always been a influential voice in my life that has kind of helped me cope with the things that I was experiencing and making sure that like, while I'm combating kind of like the gaslighting of society that gives you about your experience as a black woman, that there was someone there who was validating me. And I think that that has helped me become more of just a productive and happier person. So shout out to all the black women in my life that have made such the difference. I think I have a similar sentiment. I I like to think as I've gotten older, and actually I discovered this when I took critical race theory because we had to do we had to do a project where you have to actually go through and think about what experiences in your K through twelve racialized you, and kind of like sparked you knowing that you were who you were. And I always tell the story that I went to an art school. I went to Denver School of the Arts. So I think my whole socialization was very different. And I was a part of History Day and we created a documentary and we did two. We did one on Little Rock Nine and we did Place. And then we did one on Fannie Lou Hamer and learning about Fannie Lou Hamer in like ninth grade and like doing all this like historical archival work. I was like, this is so dope. It was a group of young black girls that were doing this. We like took first in city and we were placed to like win state, but we actually lost to a group of white girls who did a documentary about Walt Disney. And so I say that at like, you know, you're in the, whatever age you are at ninth grade, you know, early teens or whatever, our teacher at the time who was an older white man was the one who explained to us about like, you are all, we're doing this work on the behalf of this black woman who like no one really knew about and blah, blah, blah. And you were treated in these like racist, misogynist ways because you were black women. And I think I always like pinpoint that as being like my consciousness raising because then I always was like, oh, like I'm a black woman. I'm not just black. Like I already had this very like, I don't know, Afrocentric upbringing where like, 
I came in a household that was really pro-black, whatever, whatever, but I didn't really understand the like woman part. And so I think that that, what Christina said echoed where I had like a lot of rage and I didn't really know what to do with it until I like discovered literature to explain that these, this is why these things are happening. But I would say fundamentally, I've always been very outspoken. I've always been like not into authority figures trying to tell me what to do or how to act. I would like to say as I've gotten older, I know how to channel it better. But I think my role in like activism is being a disruptor. Um, and sometimes being a disruptor means that you really like, <laughs> you agitate. And so I'm learning how to do that within the means of not hurting myself and harming myself. And once again, I'll echo Christina in like therapy, right? Like I have to have these outlets to place all of this stuff and to, to be who I am in a healthy way. Because I would say that being at DU was like some of the worst two years of my life because you don't have that support system. You don't have black women there to support you in those ways. You don't have what I've had in the past. And so I think even like being a year out, almost a year out of DU and I'm like, I'm happy and I love my life and whatever, whatever is because I'm not suppressed and I have those, those structures. There were several things that both of y'all kind of highlighted that I was writing down and Christina, you had said that Black women saved my life, is how you put it. And I thought a lot about the humanizing element of that, as you had also said that you experienced a lot of gaslighting by society. And it wasn't until you were in these spaces where you received language for what you were experiencing that you were better able to understand what was going on. And I think that is just really important because I have a very similar experience to that that when we're not familiar with this language, we can sometimes feel crazy at times because we think that what we're feeling isn't real. And then the wording for this, and then other women who are like, no, you're experiencing this. Like Kalia was that for me, definitely at DU. It just humanizes that experience and validates that experience. And I think black women experience a lot of invalidation and a lot of dehumanization by society. So I just wanted to highlight both of those things that you said. But kind of going off of that, I do really quickly want us to go ahead and introduce Her Health, Her Truth before we dive in, as well as Colorado Black Health Collaborative, if y'all would be willing to kind of give a brief summary of what both of those are. Sure. So the Colorado Black Health Collaborative is a community-based organization, and we center the Black community's health here in Colorado. And her Health, Her Truth is kind of, it's a program underneath Colorado Black Health Collaborative, kind of like a, a branch. And so Her Health, Her Truth is really around centering Black women and coming up with creative solutions and how we address our health in a way that's created for us by us, right? And so, so far we've put on two different events, the first of which was um, a love letter to yourself. And really the idea behind that is like, how do we uplift ourselves, right? Like how do we show appreciation and self-love to ourselves, um, especially in a society that, as you were talking about, invalidates us all the time. And then the second one was around reconceptualizing the narrative of a strong Black woman, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later in the interview. But And kind of the idea that we just went through like a strategic planning process and something that consistently came up was like, we really care about creating that community that Kalia and I both wanted to have growing up and did have growing up um, in ways that have been so influential in our lives, right? Black women in Colorado there's not a lot of us. And so it's really important that we create and carve spaces where they can meet people throughout the state so that we can share our common experiences or share different experiences and help to humanize people with different types of intersectionalities. Um, and I think that that's one of the things we really wanna create in Her Health, Her Truth. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. I just wanted to make sure that we had those defined. Going back to what we had talked about before and what you had just said, Christina, about centering Black women, I was also thinking about what Kalia had mentioned about being at DU in a higher education and the racial battle fatigue of constantly being in those spaces. So I kind of want to shift a little bit into higher education and the experience of Black women and to learn more about y'all's experience within higher education as to Black women. What were the struggles? Were there spaces or people that were there as supports or were there not? 
I was kind of thinking about this before the interview because I think in retrospect, like, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And while I was at CSU, I really kind of struggled to find my space in place. But once I found it, I was fine, right? Like, once I was plugged in with ethnic studies and started to like do black feminist work, I literally was like, oh, it's go time, right? What I did not realize though, is when I got to DU, CSU had a lot of structural things in place to make sure that you had the supports that you need. And DU fundamentally did not have those structures. And so something that I always like to tell people is like, DU didn't have those structures for white students. So if they didn't have those structures from white students, then how are those who are already living on the peripheries going to feel and interact in a space? And so I think that that's like the structural thing that we have to really think about because it's like, okay, we know about PWIs. They don't treat black people well. If they don't treat black people well, they're not treating black women well. That's just like a fact, but when we start to like really unpack the levels to it, I, that there's levels, right? And so I think that like DU just now is getting an ethnic studies minor. They're just now really doing some of those things to create, they didn't have a cultural center. Like these are like really basic things that like will impact how people feel safe, feel comfortable, find community. And if you can't find community, then what are you going to do? And so I think for myself in higher ed, finding the black people that I could lean on and non-black people like folks, BIPOC groups was like very essential to me. Like even at DU, like working with Dr. Tewitt was really important. Like Bill Cross, Dr. Cross was really important. Anthea Johnson, like, you know, finding these people to like lean on was essential, but there's only so much leaning you can do when a system is socializing you to hate yourself and to hate your environment. So it's like, and if you can't find black women, you're like, well, <laughs> it's just me. It's just me. Yeah, let's get into it. So <laughs> I went to Emory University, which is a predominantly white institution that is located in Atlanta, Georgia during Trump's campaign. So not a fun place to be. There was, there was a lot of people at Emory who like grandparents and great grandparents and great great grandparents have been like, were attending Emory and they were there, but it was only white men and have this kind of like strong history and legacy at the university. And then you have a lot of people from the surrounding area, right? So you do have black and brown people. Um, and then you have a lot of immigrants. So you have a lot of like African immigrants who attend Emory. And so in a lot of ways, Emory, I think was, Emory is one of those places that it's just big enough that you can find a space that in a niche that you feel comfortable in. So similar to Kalia, like once you get plugged into the right spaces. However, the thing that I wasn't used to is like here in Colorado, there's not that many of us. And so we all kind of gather when we can. But at Emory, the Black population was big enough that we could segregate by like population in the diaspora, right? So like you have the the West Africans and the East Africans, you have the Caribbeans, you have the Black Americans, and then there's conflicts between them. And that was overwhelming to me because I was like, whoa, 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 like I grew up in Colorado. Why are we beefing? Like, <laughs> like we're supposed to all be friends. So that was that was an overwhelming experience to be exposed to that. It was also really cool to see like the differences because the Black population is not a monolith and you really get to see that when you see the different types of populations within within the kind of black population, but it was really a frustrating experience. So then I moved back to go to grad school here where there's like two people, I think in my program, like two or three other people um, in my concentration in my grad program. And then public health is very similar to like fields like social work, kind of like the humanity sides of things where there's a lot of white saviors. And I think one of the most frustrating part of kind of the health equity courses that I would take is that the conversations were often tar targeted towards humbling white saviors. And then there was nothing for people of color within that field. Like you were left out of the health equity conversations because it was all about like cultural humility, you know? 
And so I feel like that was a frustrating experience because you're like, okay, here is something I can really speak up on. Like I can really speak up on health equity and what that looks like for me in my life, but I'm not even having spaces in these conversations to speak because we're so focused on the experience of the white saviors. So that was a very like isolating feeling. And so like I had my two Latinx friends and we stuck together like glue through the program. And like, that's what I had. And if I, if it wasn't for meeting Kalia's mom, Cerise, who was my mentor and ended up being my boss, like I, I would have really struggled because again, black women saved my life. Like Cerise is a, was a, one of the powerful influences in my life that helped me to navigate that space in a way that was productive. When you both were talking, I was thinking about what you had just said about the classes about health equity that you take were typically just catering to the white saviors in the class. And I was just having a conversation with another DU student actually this week who was talking about how the only time she felt seen or the only time she felt like she could just exist was in her critical race and ethnic studies classes. But then this quarter, she got into another one and the, the whole, most of the class was white. So then it shifted from not actually being about learning about critical race and it shifted to combating microaggressions and trying to make the space less hostile. And so I think like those are experiences that black women are having within academia that aren't being highlighted that much. But they're experiences that are tremendously impacting like the health and well-being of them as students. Can I just say something to that point? Um, yeah. I think that that's why, like, DU showed me why my research needs to be what it is because of what you said. When I was at CSU in ethnic studies, I didn't have issues with, like, I, w- I called them, like, pedagogical issues in the classroom because my professors did not center whiteness in that way, right? you had to rise to the occasion or you could get out. I had professors that would say stuff like this. When I came to DU expecting because I was going into a master's program that that bar would be raised even higher, it actually was raised all the way down to hell because folks didn't know anything. I'm not even being funny. Like people didn't know the basic terminologies and this was across the classrooms, like intro classes, even in our critical race theory class, so much time was spent on easing white fragility and them feeling like it was so hostile and so on and so forth so me as a black woman student then my learning is being compromised because the white students cannot rise to the occasion and no one is holding them accountable because We know that black professors will get in trouble if they're forcing their students to actually like learn. And so I think that that's even something I really appreciate you for bringing that up because DU was the first place where I'm telling you, I had my mentors like Kalia calm down. Not everyone knows everything. Not everyone is at that level, but it's like, okay, but why is it that critical black women always suffer in the classroom? Like it's always us that are suffering because of the socialization that's going on here. So I hear y'all and I I think that that's something that we really need to talk about more because it's a socialization, right? We're being socialized to be silent, to not speak up and to just take whatever is offered to us although we are active participants in the classroom. We're We're paying for these classes just like everybody else but it's not being catered towards our learning experience. And to piggyback off of that, like, and I, I, I'll get off this topic, but I think an especially frustrating thing is like, because black women are so invalidated for our experiences all of the time, right? Like we're constantly being told that like, we're overly sensitive or like, this isn't a thing, you know, we live in a post-racial society, blah, 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 blah. To be a black woman who's been consistently invalidated for experiences, sit in a classroom and watch white kids have the revelations of the things you've been saying your whole life because it's validated through a white institution is one of the most frustrating dynamics you can have. And so like (laughs) to be a person like who I like, I've spent my entire life being like, oh, this is problematic in this way. This is racist in this way. This hurt my feelings in this way. And then to see the same people, like the same types of people in my classrooms being like, wait, black people are oppressed. What? because a white researcher told you it was so, it's just an extremely frustrating kind of depiction of how America works. 
I agree a lot with what you, you both were saying. And yeah, I think when you were talking about being in a classroom and having people essentially like reading your experience on a paper and then be like, oh, wow, that's actually real. That actually exists. Like that is one of the most like alienating thing. Like I never feel more isolated, more, I don't even know what the word would be to describe that feeling, but then when that happens inside of the classroom and it's a really interesting and like unique experience that also, once again, in higher education doesn't get talked about. But I kind of want to talk about this a bit more about, I can't remember which one of you said it, but I specifically wrote it down and said invalidating at their, at your expense. So we're talking about, this was specifically in regards to classes in critical race and having your experiences be invalidated at your own expense by other people. And so I kind of wanted to tie this back into a lot of what we were talking about in terms of black women and black women not always being allowed to just express their emotion, black women not being allowed to just merely exist in a, in a classroom as a student, even though they're paying the same amount of money that everyone else is. So I kind of want to ask more about that in terms for both of you. And so I guess to put that question in a more like con <laughs> concrete way would just be in what ways are black women within higher education or within society? What ways do we see that they are being both invalidated, depreciated and dehumanized? That's such a huge question. <laughs> take pieces of it however you want to take it. So I think one thing is important to to remember is like we are dealing and I hate to be like that person but I'm going to be it's like we're dealing in a in a capitalistic society, right? And so we are basing judgment of a person's value by how much they can contribute to society. And so when we are excluded through from white institutions that traditionally have been kind of these, these, the institutions that kind of maximize their capitalistic power, right? If we're being excluded from them, then not only are we being invalidated because we're a woman, we're being invalidated because we're black, but then we're also being invalidated because we're not like capitalistic producers, right? And so even though black women are one of the most educated cohorts by gender and race, we know that they still make significantly less than the white man. And so like you kind of have this intersection that I feel like often gets like ignored, which is that beyond just the discrimination that comes around with being a woman, being a black person and being a black woman, you also have this intersection of like the classism piece of like feeling like you are invalidated because you're not contributing to the society in the way that America has conceptualized the most amount of value of a contribution. I was going to say something to that effect because I feel like what people often don't grapple with in terms of Black women is that Black women live in between often being invisible or being hypervisible, which is directly tied to this capitalistic gaze. Like you are invisible in the academy and beyond when you aren't seen as being able to provide a means to production and you are hypervisible when they want to treat you like the mule of society, right? And so it's a very interesting dichotomy because I feel like that has been my experience practically everywhere, even in like traveling abroad or like things of that nature is like, how do I go from not being seen in the college of education, right? People don't want to acknowledge that I'm there, blah, blah, blah. But when it's valuable, I am now the person that they want to speak on behalf of the Blacks or like whatever, you know, and it, it goes like that. But it is, I appreciate Christina for bringing it up because it's all tied to capital and like capital gain. And even in an environment like DU is like very much so driven by class, right? Like you can feel it in the air the how a lot of these white students are super rich and like live these kind of lives and are automatically placing black people at the bottom of the the totem pole of being like we know you're here because you're on scholarship or we know whatever whatever 
I think another part of like being so exhausted about being a black woman is that you're constantly managing other people's perceptions of you, which is exhausting. It is really exhausting because there's, you don't have a lot of control over that, right? Like I can only present to you as Christina Yabua, like that's all I have to give. But like, by the time I've walked up to you, you already have made like a, a lot of people have already made like a significant amount of judgments and preconceptions about who I am. And so like, as a black woman, you have to enter into every space and every interaction that you have, understanding that they may have a preconception of you that's inaccurate. And that is an exhausting dynamic to have. Um, and so that comes up a lot in job interviews, you know, that comes up in the policy space. When you testify, that test that testimony may be received differently from you as a black woman as a messenger than it would be as a, a, a white person. Um, and so it's kind of always this idea of like, like, what can I do? How can I present myself? Like, what do I have to say in order for you to have an accurate depiction of who I am. And that's one of the things that like, I hope that her health, her truth really helps in combating is that like, we don't have to do this because we have a right to just exist. Like we don't have to be constantly managing other people's perceptions. Like we should just exist in the way that we exist because we have a right to as a human being. And I think it's like, it goes into the performance, right? Is like a lot of these institutions, be it higher education or just like the United States at large, world beyond, want Black women to perform in these white ways to be accepted in these systems. And I think that by providing community for Black women, we get to exist. <laughs> like Christina said, like we get to be, oftentimes I'm my truest self when I'm with other Black women. And it becomes a problem if we don't have those spaces, right? And oftentimes we can see that these institutions aren't worried about creating spaces for us. And let's be honest, they don't have the brain capacity or depth to create functional spaces for Black women, honestly. Um, and so it's like, we create those spaces for ourselves and we get to reimagine what the reality is for existing as a black woman without some of these pressures. Like if I can just go into a space and be Kalia in my full space and not feel like I have to hide or feel like I have to change my voice or that I can't talk in AAVE, like, you know, like if I, if I don't have that pressure, then I can, I will personally feel better. Right. Like we know that our, our mental health and our well-being depends on us being able to be our true selves. I think that works as a perfect segue back into Her Health, Her Truth and highlighting all the work that y'all are doing there. So as Christina had pointed out, one of your first events was writing a love letter to yourself for Black women. And I think that is an amazing event. And so within that, I kind of want to know more about if there were shared experiences among Black women towards how it felt to sit down and write to yourself in a loving way when society doesn't necessarily treat women like that. Were there common experiences or struggles in writing that love letter that they voiced? Was there feelings of just kind of relief, the ability, as we've stated, to just kind of exist? How did that event go and kind of what were the lessons from it? So I would say the majority of the women were just really empowered by the amount of other Black women that were attending the event, right? Like they were just really inspired by each other. Um, and we're really thankful that, like, again, that there was like this space to be in community. And so like the majority of the feedback that we got was actually around that aspect of it, less about like the activities that were in place. It was more just like, I... I'm so happy that like other people are going through the same things that I'm going through. Yeah, I think honestly, that event let us know that it is just like crucial that we're creating space and giving space for Black women to talk to other Black women. And I think even like more loose, right? Like just being in community can do so much. So like, how do we how do we keep this going and keep this momentum going, even if it's not like so topical, right? Like, because I feel like sometimes we're like, we need a topic, we need a speaker, we need da 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 da. And I think we saw that black women were like, no, we just need each other. Like, we just need this space um, and we'll be fine. So I think that that was really nice to see. And segueing into our, our second event, like seeing the turnout is is in these zoom times was really powerful as well like we had like 50 black women 
come and like request for us to keep doing it and to have these topics and to really unpack some of these conversations that we're not having on a large scale. Like society's not talking about why it's problematic for us to always have to be strong. So like if we can provide that space, then like let's get it going. And I think to that point too is just like that's another thing that society does is that they they think that the things that are some of the most problem problematic narratives that they've given us are like compliments. So like I was watching a YouTube video the other day about an interview with people with interracial couples and almost every single person when they were describing describing their black partner put strong in the in the beginning. So they said my strong black husband, my strong black wife. And it was just like this narrative that like won't leave us alone. <laughs> that just like won't let us exist and so it's, it's it's something that that doesn't get addressed because a lot of the time society thinks it's like a compliment they think it's like this thing that they're giving us so I was really happy that we were able to to get that conversation going because it is it it's a form of oppression it really is I would love to dive into that and to kind of deconstruct the narrative around the strong black woman because I think that is something that myself as a black woman did not understand how problematic that was and the representation on TV where it's the black female character that's like going hard, going hard and like never taking time for herself, never being cared for, always caring for somebody else. And so I would like to learn more about that from both of you in terms of why that character type, why that labeling is inherently problematic. I'm just going to throw this out, Christina. Capitalism. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. just going <laughs> to capitalism, right? Like when you think about black women's roles in society, a lot of the time society wants black women to be everything to everybody. Like we got to take care like let's just go back to slavery, right? Black women were expected to birth the means of production, right? Like our wombs were seen as some of the most valuable things to the state. And even with that, like we were expected to birth these kids, to pick cotton, to also take care of these white people's kids. Like this sense of resiliency and strength has always been on the fact of what Black women can do for other people. And so I think that when we ask, do we have to be strong? Like really, do, do black women have to be strong? Is that something that we want to be? Do I wanna be strong all the time? Not particularly, because that's not, I can't bear all of these things on my back. Um, and so I, I think that that is the conversation that we have to get into and reimagining it for us, right? Because I don't necessarily think that strength is a bad thing, but I think when you're expected to always be this thing, we have a problem, right? And especially when it's like folks that aren't even in your community or a part of your family are expecting you to be all of these things um, and don't give you space to exist. Like what if black women are weak? Right. Like then what? What do what do we do when we are weak? Um, and oftentimes we are weak in silence or we are sad in silence or we are depressed in silence. And I think that that's why that trope is so dangerous, because it's like, oh, if I can only show that I'm strong, what happens when I have anxiety or what happens when I need help? I often won't seek that out because everybody is expecting me to be this one way. 100%, 100% agree with Kalia. And to piggyback off of like what happens if they're weak, and I'm going to piss a lot of people off when I say this, but the strong black woman trope is to assuage guilt. It's so that people can put whatever they want to put on black women. And they're like, it's fine because she's strong, right? Like when's the, like for any white viewers or anybody really, because um, this applies to black men, this applies to people of color, this applies to other black women. When's the last time you asked yourself, did I hurt this black woman's feelings? Like to hear that, like that sounds crazy to a lot of people, like hurting a black woman's feelings. Like people are so disconnected from like the emotional being that is a black woman that 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 sentence in and of itself is a very political statement, right? And so the victim and it, people this is gonna take a little bit of explaining because when I say this, it always throws people off guard, but like the victim narrative is very privileged. 
it is the ability to say I'm a victim means that you are acknowledging that another entity is oppressing you. Right. And so like you think about like, and I'm, this is kind of going off base, but it is what it is. Um, in college, I did some research on the sex trafficking, like advocacy movement. Right. And a lot of times sex, sex trafficking centers white little girls. Like whenever a little girl goes missing, like you think about like QAnon and all of the conspiracy theories around that, like a lot of times it's centering white families because to include when the, the demographic that's most trafficked are black little girls and uh, Latinx kids, right? And so like, but typically those people are often arrested for prostitution, even when they're kids. Because the idea there is that they can't ever be victims. Like we are so strong that if we're in these positions, it's because we choose to be, right? Or like one day we'll overcome it. And so saying like, oh, women are so strong, black women are so strong. A lot of times it's like, okay, they're okay with what's happening in society. Like they can be um, complicit in it because like they have something that I don't have. Um, another like, uh, this is random too. Like I was just watching a TikTok <laughs> of this black girl who was complaining about her work environment. And she was pointing out that like a lot of times black women will speak up in their workspace and they'll say like, you know, this comment was racist. And then white women will message you separately or come up behind and be like, I have never been that strong <laughs> to say something like that, like agitational, right? But then they'll go and like send all their food back or they'll call the manager <laughs> because their services aren't up to their liking, right? Like white women will literally like go to a police officer <laughs> and complain to them about something that's affecting them, but won't have that same energy when it comes to racism within the workforce. So like at the end of the day, the strong black woman is just an excuse for society to be like, you're fine with all the crap that we put you through. I'm glad that you can be resilient and overcome. I'm so happy you said that about white women, girl, because that's that white feminism. Let's just say it. It is what white feminism is really founded on. And <laughs> walking on the backs of black women, even like in a pedagogical sense and in an intellectual sense, like I'm I'm going on a tangent and I'm gonna gladly go there. Like when we even think about like what has happened with Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality in the ways that a black woman literally made this term to explain the realities of black women. She did not make that to explain the realities of women of color. She did not make that to explain the realities of women. She made that specifically for black women. And the one term that really captured our political and social realities has been hijacked in a way where we can't use it right and i think that that goes into the victims like you can't even use your own terminologies because other people will make you their mule they will make an example out of you and uh yeah i'm really passionate about this topic because i think that black women have to unload all of this and we have to like give that baggage to the other people and i think that it takes a lot of it takes a lot to tell folks i'm not sure a negro woman made okay like i'm not doing that but it's so liberating when you start to say no like i'm not okay i'm not strong and i'm not doing this it changes the trajectory of your life and your well-being and your health but i don't think that we will ever get to that point until we as a community start to unpack that for us with us I think it's also a humanizing thing because at the end of the day, no one's going to be strong 100% of the time. You know, that's just not <laughs> feasible on any level. And then I think something that you were talking about also is earlier in the episode was about therapy and about taking time to check in and see how your mental health is doing. How are you as a human? And I think that when we push the strong Black woman care type, not only is it dehumanizing, well, it, it period is dehumanizing. And because it's dehumanizing, it's, it makes it seem like black women are more so robots than actual people with human feelings and emotions. And so I want to highlight that a little bit because I think that's a really interesting part in this conversation about the experiences of black women and the ways that 
we as a society perpetuate harm against Black women by even something as simple, well, not even as simple, even something like labeling can add into that. There was something you had also talked about with the intersectionality and Kimberly Crenshaw and how that kind of got hijacked, the intersectionality definition. I immediately went to Me Too, which was started by Toronto Burke for young Black girls in New York. And by the time the whole Me Too movement really reached its height, no one really talked about Toronto Burke. Like she kind of got eliminated within, <clears throat> excuse me, within that conversation. And yet she was the founder of it. So we see constantly like this erasure of black women within society, the erasure of their accomplishments, the erasure of what they're doing to kind of pander to white people and to highlight white people's struggles, et cetera, et cetera. So that was kind of something that when you had talked, I immediately was thinking about. I was also thinking about the intersection going off of the Kimberly Crenshaw thing of race and sexuality and that that race and sexuality, race and gender in that that creates kind of the foundation for the experiences of black women. So I wanted to learn more about that from both of you and how intersecting identities plays a, a role, a huge role in our lived experiences. You know, one of the things that I think is really ironic about the experience of the Black woman is that a lot of times when people are talking about the effect of patriarchy on men, uh, they talk about how like men have been forced to push down their emotions, right? And like the uplifting of um, white women's emotions, right? As being this like very quintessential experience for American society. Like a lot of times we are tailored towards walking on eggshells around white women um, because of their emotions. And like people talk about the power of, of, of white women tears, right? And like how they can move mountains. And the thing that happens is like when you put the word black in front of the word woman and you like create the synergistic effect of both sexism and racism, what you get is a very similar experience to like how masculinity is viewed in society. Like we are not allowed to fully express our emotions. Um, and so like some of my early, earliest advice from my, my family members were like, don't you ever let people see you cry. Like that's a sign of weakness and they'll walk all over you. You know, people have been, have always told me like, there's no point in crying, you know? And if you express your emotions too vocally, then you'll be put in like the angry black woman trope, right? And so like, I remember one time I was captain of the debate team. I know, a little nerdy, um, <laughs> but one time in, the, in, in debate, after you're finished debating, they give you like these kind of long pieces of papers where they were collecting notes on like your arguments and how valid they were, right? And one of the, um, comments I got, speaking like how I'm speaking to you now, so very impassioned, but not angry, just impassioned. Someone told me, uh, all of your arguments were valid, but you lost because you sounded angry. And so like, that's the experience of a lot of black women. Like we're just not allowed to be, like we're not allowed to have the full spectrum of emotions. Like we are the workhorses. I love how you put it, Kalia, like the mules of society. And if we, dare try to move out of that space, then we get invalidated or we experience some type of like violence. Um, and I like, I, that's why I lost the debate. Like <laughs> I lost the debate, not because anything I was saying was um, not accurate or because what I was saying wasn't valid. I lost because of the person's perceptions. It goes back to that managing perceptions piece. Yeah. And I think like, honestly, it's like, people want you to <laughs> perform. They wanted you to perform this type of whiteness. Um, and if you would have gone up there with like a lily white girl voice and said it, then you would have, you know, they would have wanted to validate you, but it would have been another excuse, right? I really think a lot about this theory and it's called Multiple Jeopardy. It came out, I wanna say in 1980s or like late, like 79. And um, it's a black woman who created like, kind of what I think intersectionality is, why intersectionality has been morphed in the ways that it is because she specifically talks about systems interacting and that it's not an additive, it's a multiplica multiplication. So like if you had two identities that are how do I say this, like subordinate identities, then they multiply. 
the additive way that folks do it now is like, well, I'm white, but I'm gay, and this equals oppression, right? And that's not how it works because the systems don't interact the same when your whiteness is a privilege, like, you know, and your queerness is this way. So I think that that is very important for Black women because we have those Blackness and womanness interacting in these ways to create a, a different reality, right? We're, we're intertwined in systems that have not privileged us at all. Um, and so what do you do? And how do you grapple with those realities? I think that that becomes the reality where Black women have to like find ourselves and like understand the systems because I think it becomes challenging if you don't understand why things are happening to you in these ways. I think that was a thing for me. Like I'm a big advocate for like black feminism or black womanism and really understanding what your ties are to the black community as well. Because I think that we also grapple with the fact that sometimes folks want us to be black first and advocate for blackness in a way and like put our womanhood on the back burner. So I think really finding your theory, dare I say, or like, you know, what your engagement is like so important. I think something that's really interesting is we saw this recently too with the protests that were happening over the summer is in how differently people would react to the shootings of black men versus like Breonna Taylor or black women in general. And so I was thinking a lot about that when you were talking in terms of how that plays into the intersectionality piece, but then also kind of the just erasure of Black women. But I think that's specifically interesting to look with inside of the Black community is that a lot of times, even within the Black community, more of the focus goes on the Black men and not on the Black women. And so I think that just adds another layer into this piece. Did y'all see that at all during the protest this summer? Did y'all experience that at all? What were your thoughts on that? I think like just off the top of my head, I think it even goes further, right? Like because Black Lives Matter was started by like queer Black women and has been like hijacked in those particular ways, like Me Too and so on and so forth. And I think about the fact, like I was reading about this the other day about how like trans black women have been killed like disproportionately higher during COVID um, than before. And they were already the highest group of black folks that were being murdered. So we're even getting into like the deep intersections of why it is that folks don't want to center trans folks in general and trans black women specifically in the movement, right? Like we, the erasure that Black women across the scale face, and then to even bring the intersections of like transphobia and like why folks literally are erasing, erasing people who are dying in our communities at the highest rate, I think is it, deep, it's so deep and it's so far beyond because when you think about like queer Black women and the work that they have done to make sure that queer Black folks are centered, um, and how it has shifted to like cis hetero black men getting all of the support from the black community is the reason why I don't think we can afford as black women, as queer black folks to um, like <laughs> to be black first. Like we can't afford that. Like that's that's a violence against ourselves if we aren't really like bringing our whole identities to the space. But I think one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is like, the how the family dynamic in the black community influences who we give support to so like a lot of the uh black men who have had like really big reactions um one of the reasons why they've had huge um reactions is because of their moms like their moms have gotten in the public eye their moms have raised support their moms have built foundations like their moms have had a lot of like um have a lot have have organized and mobilized communities in a lot of ways after the react like after their son's death, um, and I'm not quite sure if that exists in the same like I don't think that society naturally has the same like kind of maternal feeling towards black women, um, and I think a lot of times like the interaction between black moms and black daughters is often like one of empowerment. It's like no one's going to help you help yourself, <laughs> right? Like I think like a lot of times, and I think it's, we're socialized to be that way because of everything that we've talked about in this interview, right? Like, because we're taught to like, 
push down our feelings and to, um, I'm going to keep using this um, expression because I love Akilia, but like the mule of society, like, I, I feel like the way that black women raise other black women is often to be as strong as possible because they have this understanding that no one else is going to look out for you the way that you look out for yourself. Right. And so I'm like, not quite sure if like one of the reasons besides just like straight sexism is because there's a lack of like, um, like kind of a, like a, a global communal maternal reaction for black women in the way that there is for black men. Um, I also think like, one of the reasons why Breonna Taylor got so much recognition compared to other women um, is because Breonna Taylor represented like the worst nightmare for a lot of people. Like we had just gone into quarantine, we had shut down and this idea that like anyone could just break into your house and kill you would have rep like represents this like very kind of um, this scary moment because people fear this idea of like people breaking into your personal space. Um, whereas like if people are out and about and they encounter police, a lot of times they get blamed for whatever interaction they had with the police. Um, and so I'm thinking that like, that's one of the reasons why Breonna Taylor got the reaction that she did compared to the, the numerous other black women that have been killed by police. Um, and it helps that she, as to Kalia's point that she's cisgendered. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my thoughts. I also think like Breonna Taylor's whole movement was hijacked by black capitalists. So like, let's really, and white capitalists, like it became this, like I had never seen the commodification of a death so rampant in the ways that they did with Breonna Taylor, almost like it was a, like, like the trendiness of black death is something that's very hard for me to unpack. But Breonna Taylor in, in particular was this like social media, we're having Breonna Khan events and it was like, people really capitalize on a black woman's death in a way that was so sadistic is the word that I'm going to use because it was like, we've never seen anyone do anything like that. But this black woman that had this particular different kind of death, like Christina said, is now um, everywhere in these ways that a black woman is more celebrated in death than she is in life. And I think that that's also like, even with George Floyd, we saw that like them um, making him like most influential person of 2020, he, he for dying, right? For, in, in, for being murdered. And I think that that's something that's very important for us in this movement building is like, why are we interacting with certain things in the ways that we are versus others? Um, and why is it that Black women's deaths are always so different than other groups? And it goes back to that invisibility and hypervisibility that I was talking about before. Like, we see trans Black women being completely invisible in the narratives. Like, only queer Black folks and Black women are amplifying these voices. And then we see Breonna Taylor's death, this, like, hypervisibility in, like, this commodified way. So, like... What does that say about Black women's positionality in society? And I think the lack of care for Black women's lives is always apparent either way you put it, right? I saw a Breonna Taylor meme yesterday that was like a SpongeBob meme. And it was like, you know, arrest the cops that killed Breonna Taylor, which great message, but a SpongeBob meme, like that just seemed to trivialize it. Like, why is this? I, I agree, like, it's really just like a trendy thing to do. I kept seeing that I forget, like it feels so far and it wasn't really that far, but COVID times, but I kept seeing it become this, like, this is what we're going to do if you don't. And it was like a joke. And so I'm like, how did we get here? And yeah, it, it's, it, it was just odd. And I like that you brought up the moms because there's a book um, Ozzy actually sent to me and it's about the moms of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King and someone else and like how much black women's like influence, like how we like, we don't realize how big the influence of black motherhood is on this like consciousness building. But I think like behind a lot of these movements that are large, there are black women on the grounds doing real work or are the people who created it. And it, they've, like you said, Karis, they've co completely been erased. And so it's like, how do we 
give them their flowers in real time and how do we amplify the voices of these black women who are creating the theories creating the movements creating all the things that we do and actually support black women because i think that that was the other thing of this summer is like protect black women became this like performative gesture which we saw that like no one was protecting black women in any of these times or is trying to do it now so like how do we create community with each other to make sure that we feel protected and what do we do in real time to see those changes because it sounds pessimistic but like i truly don't believe that any of these other groups are going to like rise to the occasion but i know i can put I can put my trust in other Black women and we can build in the ways and imagine the realities that we want to have. Um, and I think it's okay to be realistic in that way to say like Black men as a collective, they are not helping us. Non-Black people, good luck. Like, you know, like, so it's like, how do we do that with each other? I think one like story that really encapsulates like this concept along with something that we were talking about earlier is Stacey Abrams. Like, I feel like, and I'm obsessed with Stacey Abrams. So this isn't to come at people who love her. Okay. Because I'm also a fan, but I do feel like people spent so much time talking about all of the ways in which she helped influence the election and how she like really did a lot to fight voter suppression. And then forgot that like the same state that she worked so hard for, she lost the gubernatorial race to. Like we spend so much time talking about like, oh, protect black women, blah, 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 when they do things for society at large, but we don't take the time to do things that actually benefit them. Like she would have made a fantastic governor. And instead of like us being raw, raw around black women at that time, now we're celebrating for her, for her amazing work that she said in the community two years later. So like, that's just like a frustrating um, kind of example about how everybody's obsessed with Stacey Abrams in 2020 and 2021, but like we weren't obsessed with her enough in 2018 to elect her. And I think like that captures all of the identity politics of all of our conversation, right? We have a dark skinned, black, natural haired woman, right? Who they literally treated like a mule. Like they were okay with Stacey Abrams doing all this work, flipping Georgia. She really was organizing on the grounds, making sure whatever was happening. But the moment that it counted, in my personal opinion, the moment that count was what you said, was the election for her to be the governor. And they systemically took that from her. We know it was like a lot of systemic racism, so on and so forth, voter suppression, the list truly goes on. And now they want to give her a Nobel Peace Prize talking about she was the most influential, but you couldn't support this Black woman to get her in the position that she deserved for the work that she's done. And that is the erasure of, of her. Yep. And so it's going to be another example of how a Black woman had to be resilient, how she bounced back. <laughs> she was so strong. strong. She saved yeah. America. That's what people are so saying. Strong. She saved our democracy. No, 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 no. I don't want to save y'all, unfortunately. I don't, I'm not saving America. I'm saving Black women. I'm saving myself. I'm not saving this country. One of the things I want to ask y'all is for the Black women listening specifically. What either from this, what we've talked about today or a general message, what would you most like to tell them as listeners today who have listened to this podcast, what would you most like to leave Black women with? I think what I would say to them is to give yourself space and permission to exist outside of people's perceptions. And that includes, again, a controversial thing, <laughs> but like this narrative that a lot of Black women have been grown up with is you have to work twice as hard to be half as good, right? The, like a lot of us have been socialized that everything we have to do has to be extra in order for it to be excellent. And like, you are excellent without that. You are excellent without your contributions to capitalism. You are excellent without people's opinions. You are purely excellent because you are who you are and you have existed in this space that works to invalidate you and to suppress you in so many ways. You are purely excellent, excellent by existing. And so like lean into that and um, make sure that you're doing your due diligence to take care of yourself go to therapy, 
eat fruits and veggies, get some sleep, <laughs> get some rest. And don't be afraid to like prioritize yourself in all of this because literally everyone around you is going to be working so hard to suppress you and who you are. I, I wholeheartedly agreed with that. I think my biggest thing now, and someone said this the other day, but you don't have to suffer in these environments. Like it's okay to leave these spaces. It's okay to prioritize yourself and your well-being. Because to Christina's point, I believe we are so celebrated for like making it out on the other side. Um, and sometimes we just need to go. And so like know what you have the space and capacity for. Know that there are places that can support you, that can that do appreciate you and validate you and really seek those spaces out because I, I I just think I've been really thinking about this for myself personally and being like, did I have to suffer to the magnitude that I did at DU, right? I, I thrived and I did things and I created things and whatever, whatever, but at what cost? And I think that that is the question that I always leave with Black women is it worth your well-being to be in these white supremacist spaces and are there other avenues for you to guess like get your education and also enjoy your time and so i think that that's really what i would say we don't have to be here and honestly these institutions need us more than we need them and that's just the straight up fact so always know that your value um and put yourself first so I guess in wrapping us up, I want to thank you both again for being on here. I've learned, I've loved learning from you both and listening to your stories. And it's been really a validating time for me too. And just hearing the similarities and in the work that you both are doing, I really appreciate it. And I know it's really necessary. So thank you both for sharing on here and being vulnerable and making time to be here. Thank you. Uh, I just have to say that Cars was a part of one of my first cohorts of students that I did. And um, I'm so happy to see you like doing the work and doing what you're doing. Like you are so vibrant and I love you and you're dope. So thanks for having us and thinking of us truly. Uh, everybody, her health, her truth. Follow us on Instagram. Get in the mix. If you're a Black woman, that's of course. If you're not, you can give us some money because we need it. But I'll let Christina say her closing. <laughs> I think she covered it. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for having us. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Rage Podcast. As always, we're super glad that you're tuning in with us and sharing your time with us. One thing that we do want to mention is that you can find Her Health, Her Truth on Instagram at herhealth.hertruth. If you would like to check out the work that Colorado Black Health Collaborative is doing, please visit coloradoblackhealth.org. As always, the Rage podcast is a product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. For more information about us and the work that we do, please visit our website at irise.du.edu. To ensure that we can continue to bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe or follow, like, and share on the platform that you're listening to us on. The music for this particular episode is by Duong Tai and is entitled Chill Jazzy Lo-Fi. Once again, thank you for listening and we'll check you next time.